Welcome to AEM Early Access, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. In recent history, you've probably picked a side in some pretty divisive matchups. Yankees versus Red Sox, Army versus Navy, Pepsi versus Coke, or for the post-millennials, Yanny versus Laurel, or white and gold versus the black and blue dress. Which is best? Which is right? Who's to say? Well, for one of the classic face-offs in modern emergency medicine, and by that, I mean DL versus VL, or direct laryngoscopy versus video laryngoscopy, well, it looks like we may finally have a clear winner. Or, at least, that is what today's guest, Dr. Calvin Brown III, is going to convince you of. Today, we're taking up the DL versus VL argument again and discussing the recent AEM article entitled Video Laryngoscopy Compared to Augmented Direct Laryngoscopy in Adult Emergency Medicine Tracheal Intubations, a National Emergency Airway Registry, or NEAR, study. Dr. Brown is an attending emergency physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and associate professor of emergency medicine at Harvard Medical School and principal investigator for the National Emergency Airway Registry. And we're so happy to have him here to talk with us today. Don't forget to read the full text of this article available on our blog at brownemblog.com, open access for the month of February, 2020. Dr. Brown, it's a pleasure to have you here with us on the podcast today. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So for some background, this study comes out of the NEAR, uh, National Emergency Airway Registry. So for those who haven't heard of it, I know it's been around for a really long time, but can you describe NEAR? Absolutely. So the National Emergency Airway Registry is an ongoing multi-center observational intubation registry that has undergone several different iterations over the years. As you mentioned, it's been going on for several years, at least since 2002. We have been collecting the most recent set of data since January 1st of 2016. Currently, there are 25 centers that are enrolling uh, intubation data into our registry, mostly North American centers, but we have some international sites as well. So with this paper, here we are again, wading into the DL or direct laryngoscopy versus VL or video laryngoscopy debate. I don't know if you're on Twitter, but every once in a while I see this flurry of just super passionate arguments about the various studies that have been related to this in the past. And you did a very nice job in your paper of describing some of the relevant previous studies and findings. Can you highlight some of those for us just to set the stage? Absolutely. So the DL versus VL debate has been raging for many, many years, and there are people who fall firmly into one camp or the other, despite despite the evidence. Um, so there are folks who grew up with direct laryngoscopy, they're good at direct laryngoscopy, and they are loyal to their trusty direct laryngoscope. Um, VL has been increasing in uh, popularity since the early 2000s. And I, I think without having to go into a lot of detail, on balance, the uh, bulk of the emergency department-based literature has suggested pretty strongly, with a couple of exceptions, that video laryngoscopy gives you a much better view of the glottic inlet 
And because of that tends to do a couple of things. It facilitates first pass success and limits the incidence of peri-intubation adverse events, specifically esophageal intubation. Now there has been a little bit of a discrepancy between the ED literature and what's in the ICU literature. Some of the ICU studies that have come out recently have not shown a clear performance uh, difference between the two devices. So there continues to be this ongoing debate about uh, DL versus VL. Okay. So now let's talk about this paper, uh, which is entitled Video Laryngoscopy Compared to Augmented Direct Laryngoscopy in Adult Emergency Department Tracheal Intubations. So with this study, what question or questions were you specifically hoping to address? Yeah. So the specific question in this paper, this was to uh, speak to an, an ongoing criticism of the available VL versus DL evidence, which is that some folks have continued to say that uh, VL has not really been compared to what you might consider an optimized or augmented DL attempt. So for example, someone who could do all of the things you might do when faced with a challenge, a challenging direct laryngoscopic attempt, if you were to capture sort of the best attempt that you could do with a direct laryngoscope, you may not find the same performance gap uh, between VL and DL. And so essentially, DL has not been given its uh, fair shot to be uh, as good as it could be. And some of those things include using a bougie, using laryngeal manipulation, and in, in some cases, repositioning the patient. So we wanted to look at that. So what would VL look like compared to what we are calling an augmented direct laryngoscopic attempt? Okay, so when you in, within your paper, when you referred to augmented DL, what interventions did you include, and why did you just completely leave out? I guess we call them regular direct laryngoscopy. Why did you specifically exclude them? Well, we because VL versus standard garden variety DL intubations have been looked at multiple times. Okay. But what, what's been missing is a comparison of VL uh, discreetly to only DL intubations that are augmented by one of three maneuvers. And the three that we chose were things commonly known and taught to improve direct laryngoscopy. The first would be laryngeal manipulation. So there's lots of evidence that suggests if you reach around and move the larynx down into the right, you can improve your glottic view even without moving the blade. The other is use of a bougie, which can facilitate intubation even if the glottic view is not optimal. And the third, which there's some debate about this, but we included it because it is actively debated, uh, is changing patient positioning from a supine to a semi-erect or ramped position. So those are the three that we looked at. Okay. So you began with uh, 11,741 intubations over a period of two years. It was from January 2016 to the end of 2017. And of that number, it was 6,939 patients who underwent oratracheal intubation with either augmented DL or unaided VL. And those remaining four some thousand intubations, they must have been either unaugmented DL or augmented VL, or they weren't completed. Is that what those were? Yeah. So they were either DL that didn't have an augmentation maneuver or VL that was augmented by something, or they were folks who were intubated by some other means or with some other device. Great. 
So you were looking at first attempt success and adverse events. And what were the adverse events that you included? Obviously, esophageal intubation was one. Yes. I mean, we were primarily focusing on hypoxia um, since the quality metric around airway management these days is first attempt success without hypoxia. That was the primary uh, adverse event. But near collects adverse events for lots of things, including, like you mentioned, esophageal intubation, dental trauma, cardiac arrest, et cetera. Okay. So, all right. So tell us a little bit more about your methods and the design of the study, and then we'll get into the meat. Sure. So the methods are pretty straightforward. This is a, an observational registry. So uh, data are entered in real time by the operator. And then we selected intubations based on the criteria we already went over. And then essentially what we wanted to do is run a set of statistical tests that would leave us with the following answer. Does either VL or augmented DL, is there a differential benefit in terms of first pass success only dependent on those two variables? Now, there's lots of things that can contribute to either a failed intubation attempt or intubation success. And we accounted for all of the, those variables that we could think of and that we collect in the registry and then entered them into a logistic regression model. And then hit the button on the, on the stats program and it gives you an odds ratio of likelihood of success holding all of those other confounders constant in the regression analysis. Okay. So drum roll, what did, what did you find? Just walk us through your results. Sure. So basically, um, we looked at several different combinations or permutations of what we're defining as augmented DL. And I won't go through every single one of them, but we looked at DL plus bougie, DL plus laryngeal manipulation. So we looked at each one of those three individually and then combinations of them together. So we had seven models that we compared to unaided VL and ran logistic regressions on, on each of those. And then we stratified VL based on blade shape. So there are standard geometry video laryngoscopes and hyperangulated blades. And we were interested in doing that so that um, people could really understand if there was a difference within the DL, I mean, sorry, within the VL family. And the bottom line is that no matter which device, no matter which VL you use, whether standard geometry or hyperangulated, our analysis suggests that you are anywhere between one and a half to three times more likely to obtain a first attempt success compared to DL that's augmented by either the three things we mentioned singularly or any combination thereof. All right. So there's a lot of unhappy diehard DL fans listening right now. Um, and so you, you mentioned a lot of variables, but let's just talk about a couple specifics. So operator experience, no change? Well, we, we held that as a variable that was constant in the regression analysis. So we, operator experience does contribute to success, um, but we didn't want that to impact the outcome. We only wanted the device itself to be the, the uh, variable of interest. So we actually did have uh, operator experience as one of our variables in our model. And how about just tell us a little bit about no, really no change in the perceived difficulty of the airway 
going into it? Did you, how did you consider that? That's right. So Near collects a, a number of different hallmarks of uh, an anatomically difficult airway, reduced mouth opening, reduced neck mobility. There's a number of them. We collect them as, as a standard operating procedure. And all of those difficult airway markers were accounted for in the regression model. So essentially, with all of those things being considered equal, either operator experience, difficult airway characteristics, all the other confounders, there was still a significant difference between VL and and ADL. Okay. Are there any limitations of this study that you feel like would be important to highlight? Yes. I, I think there are, are two things um, two things to consider. One is that it's a self-reported registry, so that like all self-reported registries, there's always the potential for reporting bias, recording bias, recall bias. Um, we don't think that that was... Um, something that is um, a, a major limitation because we ask folks to uh, do a couple of things. One, enter the intubation data in real time or very close to real time, so they shouldn't have a lot of degradation of memory. And the other is that the sites send in compliance reports so that we know that they are recording at least 90% of the intubations that are occurring in their respective emergency departments. And the other is that the registry is made up mostly of academic centers. So this represents performance that is observed mostly within academic emergency medicine. So your results are in contrast to some of the other studies we talked about in the beginning of the interviews, specifically, I think, the ICU-based studies. And do you have any hypotheses as to why that might be? Yes. Uh, One is that uh, ICU studies look at different operators, uh, mostly intensivists or other uh, inpatient physicians. Um, the one paper that had received a lot of play was the Larisco paper uh, that came out within the last couple of years. It was a multi-center, multi-ICU randomized control trial of DL versus the McGrath-Mac VL and showed no difference. But you know the, the data are only as good as, uh, as the data you collect. And the problem is in that study is that the vast majority of the intubators were relatively untrained internal medicine interns. And so it doesn't really represent uh, what results you would expect in someone who has some experience with VL or or airway management in general. Okay. So what implications do you think this study has for learners and trainees? Like, Do you still encourage them to try DL as a first line when they're coming up to intubate? So I think DL is still an important skill for people to be competent in. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's always the potential that uh, a VL system that they have in their ED, wherever they're working, and they're very common now even in remote places, uh, that there's some technical issue, power's out, the screen's broken, something. So folks still need to know how to do DL. Um, I do not, with my residents, suggest that they start with DL. Mm -hmm. Uh, The way that we get over that is that we essentially use a a video system with a blade that's shaped like a conventional laryngoscope. So the advantage is they can start doing DL type of mechanics, but they're actually still using a video laryngoscope. So if they happen to get into trouble without having to remove the device or switch gears, you can simply just decide to look to the right a little bit and then use the screen. 
if they really want to try it first without video support, perfectly happy to have them do that. Uh, but you need to have uh, immediate recourse to video technology without having to withdraw and reinsert a device. So that's how we get over it. Um, it's not a first line thing for me. I think in 2020, you should be intubating with VL routinely. And I think what this paper suggests is that, uh, you know, you need to have a VL system. You need to use it, use it often, get good with it. And um, it's, it's time to untie yourself from your direct laryngoscope. Excellent. So what comes next? Well, um, I, I think well, once people hear this podcast, I'll probably be answering some, uh, <laughs> some, uh, some angry questions from people who, uh, who really love their direct laryngoscope. So I'll spend some time doing that. Uh, no, I mean, we're, we're going we're gonna to continue to uh, push the envelope for airway management. We'll look for the next big study to do. But I think this is... Um, this is settled in your mind. Yes, I think this is settled, right? I think that the evidence has been pointing uh, to this direction in a while, at least within the emergency medicine realm. And uh, I think this one is harder to argue with. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next and uh, what kind of letters you get. That'll be interesting. (laughs) But it was great talking to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access. The full text of this article is available on our blog at brownemblog.com, open access for a limited time. Check out all of our podcasts on iTunes. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.